0: Listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.
1: Hello. <laughs> You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week. That's a very cheery <laughs> greeting. Oh, I was just happy to be here. Mm. The 18th of March to the 22nd of March this week, we. The uh, whole
0: team was back together. Oh, Whoa. it's been a while.
1: <laughs> All on air.
2: In our f- full glory. For our full glory.
1: Uh, Impressed by our glory was Tom Griffiths, who was in to talk about his new essay in the Griffith Review called "Planet Is Alive: Radical Histories for Uncanny Times." It's a very interesting chat. Uh, we also talked amongst ourselves about the the, 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 the superpowers. What superpowers isn't it? Is it? The skills and things that we learned from weird jobs over the years. Yes, yes. Like and I'm very good at filling up cars with petrol because I worked in a petrol station. Who would have thought station. that that was a skill? But
0: I know. It, it turns is. out it
3: is. Mm. Thank you.
0: Uh, we also got to chat to, um, it was the opening of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival and Drew Drogi, who was the star of Bright Colours and Bold Patterns, came in to talk about that. And also we reminisced about the times when we were younger and got into trouble.
2: Yes. And we caught up with Roan about his art installation empire down in uh, Sher Sherb. Up Up. in
1: Sherbrooke Forest. Yes. At Burnham Burnham Beaches. Beaches. Burnham
2: Beaches. And Hayley Inch came in to tell us uh, all about a film called High Life, a film review that went into some perhaps unexpected places.
1: Yeah, they're going to give a language warning on that film And a content warning. And a content (laughs) warning. See you later.
2: Three Triple R planet is alive radical histories for uncanny times is a major essay in the new edition of griffith review its author is tom griffiths emeritus professor of history at the australian national university he's joining us now welcome to Breakfasts. good morning you say we're living in uncanny times what do you mean by that
4: I mean that there, we, don't, we seem to be um, somehow caught between horror and hubris about this crisis that is unfolding around us, an ecological crisis. We, we're half aware of our predicament, yet seem unable to do very much about it. And in using the term uncanny, I'm consciously echoing a great writer, the, the novelist um, Amitav Gosh, who... In a book I really recommend called The Great Derangement, uh, Climate Change and the Unthinkable, he looks at why is it that we're unable even really to tell stories at this moment about the crisis that we're living through? We're unable to really get a handle on it. So Uncanny, I think, is also about our growing understanding that we do live on a planet that is alive and we do share it with other creatures and that their fates are very much bound up with ours. So there's kind of this other presence, uh, a non-human of non-human lives, which we have to become aware of in order to make sensible decisions about our own future.
2: That relates to another point that you make. You say that climate change and ecological crisis are often seen as purely scientific issues. What's wrong with seeing them as scientific issues? That's the obvious standpoint, isn't it?
4: Yes, it is. And it's something that I think we're all familiar with in the way this issue is talked about. I'm a historian, so I'm very keen to see and to understand the way in which um, scientific issues ultimately, I think, uh, become human issues because we have to deal with them. We have to make decisions on the basis of the science. And so I'm really just making a case for the humanities, for the arts to have a role in the decisions that we're going to make, that we are trying to make about our future at the moment, uh, which are clearly drawing on the science, which I respect highly. My whole career as a historian has been, in a way, to try and get people and, indeed, even my colleagues to wake up to the role of science in human history and particularly of nature uh, Mm -hmm. in human history. Um, The way in which history developed as a sort of professional discipline in the 19th century really uh, pushed nature away um, history became professional as a kind of science of the document, of the official archive it became it, it separated history from prehistory, civilised from primitive, culture from nature it made history a kind of story of, um, of human dominance over nature How uh, that is a kind of history which is leading us down the wrong path. Yeah. So um, my essay is, in a way, a call for radical histories, for uncanny types, and uh, I think that we're, it's not just a call for it. I'm trying to say it's happening, you know. Historians are telling new stories, and they're stories that recognise the agency of nature and of other creatures on the planet, that the planet is alive.
2: Uh- well, let's unpick some of the big scientific terms that you discuss in this essay. While we're on that point, what's the Anthropocene and what's the Sixth Extinction?
4: Okay, thanks, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're terms that are really getting out there now, aren't they? But we do need to keep drilling back and working out what they mean and where they came from. So, you know, we have geological eras going back um, millions, indeed billions of years, in Earth history, and the Anthropocene is the argument that we as humans have initiated a new geological era. The Anthropocene is a kind of term, a poetic metaphor, if you like, as well as a geological term, that uh, tries to get us tiny, puny, um, brief-lived humans to think in long-term geological time. So the Anthropocene uh, is a new... uh, proposed epoch in earth geological history it's proposed generally that it began with the industrial revolution with the digging up of fossil fuels and the burning of carbon in the atmosphere and the way in which we're now changing climate in other words it says in the anthropocene era humans became a geological force that we can compare with asteroids glaciers Volcanoes, even the orbital variations of the Earth itself, that's how dominant we've become on the planet. So the Anthropocene, in a way, shocks us into thinking, oh, my God, really? If we, have we really got our grip on the planet in that kind of way? Yes. There's nothing
2: good about being compared with an asteroid. Is there?
4: <laughs> no, no, indeed. Well, no. <laughs> and uh, so, you know... 65 million years ago, an asteroid hit the Earth and uh, ended the age of the dinosaurs and initiated a new geological era. So are humans really that powerful on Earth? Yes, they are. And it's realising that that I think is part of the necessary shock to get us out of this, um, uh, this paralysis. Uh, and the other term you mentioned, Jeff, was the sixth extinction. So, so that, again, requires us to think across deep time. So, uh, you know, I was saying how human history is very much the story of the exceptionality of humans and tends to be over a few hundred years, maybe a couple of thousand years. But the sixth extinction and the Anthropocene say, hang on, you've got to place human history in long-term Earth history. So there have been five previous great extinctions in Earth history and the last one was when the asteroid hit the Earth 65 million years ago. Now... In our own lifetimes in the last half century, humans have wiped out almost two-thirds of the Earth's wildlife. Almost two-thirds of the Earth's wildlife. That is a great extinction event. We are living through the sixth extinction. We don't even know how bad it is. You know, we're only just coming to terms with how many insects there are on, on Earth, for example. We, we can't count them, we can't identify them, we don't know how many species there are, but we're losing them before we can even identify them. So the sixth distinction is to say, this is the era we're living through. Uh, it, to look for a comparison, you have to go back 65 million years. So again, it's a wake-up call to us, and I think that this is the role of history in our daily affairs. You know, history is partly about recognising the integrity of past times in their full context, but it's also saying... Where do we sit on the trajectory of change? You know, what is our generation, our era, our time about? Where does it sit on these trends? It's trying to realise our moment in its full horror (laughs) and its full glory. Um, And I think history is trying to always put us in that long-term perspective.
1: Taking this perspective, though, does it give you any cause for optimism for the future?
4: Great question. and something I wrestle with all the time. I think uh, we need hope and we need optimism to act. And so I think many people are kind of uh, thrown into a torpor by the kind of gloom stories that abound now, the kind of apocalyptic stories. So where do we find hope? Because we need it. And I believe that good history does offer hope. It has to Deliver the facts, of course, the evidence based uh, views, but it has to find some way in which we can get some traction on issues and events that otherwise will overwhelm us and that we will just become sort of swept away by. And so I think the way we do that is by somehow connecting our lives, our daily lives, our social existence with these big long-term stories about geological time. So that's the challenge, I think, for storytellers right now and for historians. It's the challenge that the Bengali novelist Amitav Ghosh, who I mentioned, was trying to grapple with in his book, saying, how do we find these stories that make a link between people's daily lives and these sort of unbelievable, deep-time, apocalyptic narratives? Uh, Because if we don't find that link, then people are going to feel powerless without agency and without hope and and we're not going to be able to make the necessary decisions to to survive so Mm -hmm. yeah so i believe in my history writing i'm always striving to tell quite intimate stories about the earth the soil beneath our feet and connect them to the grand stories about the earth capital e the planet on which we live
2: there's a lot to pull out there. If people want to know more, the essay is The Planet is Alive Radical Histories for Uncanny Times. You can find it in the latest Griffith Review, Griffith Review 63. We've been talking to its author, Tom Griffiths, Emeritus Professor of History at the Australian National University. Thank you so much.
4: Thank you. Triple
0: R, not for everyone, for anyone. Oh, that was weird. Th- Give me a fright. <laughs> still, oh, be still. Be still. <clears throat> Jeff, earlier you were, you mentioned that um, you were doing some stuff with Fiona Scott Norman at yes. RMIT and how um, she was
2: giving you mic technique. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't. T- I actually broke the microphone. Oh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Were you holding it? Did you have to hold it? It was, was of like a microphone, was it?
2: <laughs> no, it was Is like it- a. Because I think all the unis do this now. They have this... I I think it's like a new policy. It certainly wasn't on there when I I was there, but everything's got to be recorded Mm -hmm. and it's all got to be uploaded. And it does it automatically. So when you get asked to do a lecture, you've got to clip this little lapel mic on. Okay, right. And it's automatically connected. so my lectures were recorded. Yeah, right. Well, um, so I was just talking away and then suddenly it just fell off the lapel, fell on the ground and smashed (laughs) up.
1: Really? God.
2: And so, yeah, then... it took her about 15 minutes of fiddling around to get it back together again.
1: And did you have to stop, pause the lecture during that time? Well, I was hoping that would happen. But no.
2: No, but then I had to go on. But then when it started again, I told everyone, well, if you're listening to this at home, you've missed all the best bits. (laughs) 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 The 15 minutes wasn't
1: working. Did they laugh? Did the students laugh to that?
2: Yeah, sure. (laughs) In stitches. (laughs) And my humorous jokes.
0: (laughs) Uh, But it just made me think back to... You know, it's that concept of taking your job everywhere you go. Like obviously in this job I'm constantly, everything I do is like, how can I turn this into a talk break? Yes. Every little thing. But then I'm, I'm thinking of like previous jobs that I've had and I think a big one that I had was when I worked in the bowling alley and I would constantly look at people's shoes and try and work out what size they were. Oh, that's ah. so
2: weird.
0: I became very good at it. Okay. Can you do it
2: now still? Or
0: um I... or, oh, let's find out. So Jeff just pogged his leg up in the air like <laughs> You're a, a ballerina. size ten?
2: Yeah, I think I am. Or maybe eleven. Ten or
1: eleven, something 10 or like or that. 11. Oh, I've got bare feet, I don't want to put my foot on the air. Okay, fair enough. But that was you it's know. Like a superpower.
0: Yeah, it was Alright, maybe I'll do good it anyway.
1: But don't <laughs> don't comment on my foot.
0: Oh, oh that's okay. a six. Six. You're a long way away. Okay. I'm an eight and a half. Six in the men's. I'm an old standard. So, oh, seven in the men's. Okay, seven in <laughs> the means. men's.
1: That's <laughs> so a bit of a get out of <laughs> yeah. jail free card.
0: Well, they were different sizes in, in you know, you have to go men's sizes in, in in the bowling shoes. Ah, so there's no eight and a half. You'd be a seven in the men's.
2: What? what what's special about a bowling shoe anyway?
0: Just the um, it's got the rubber heel and the s- slippery, sole bit. Ah. So you can do the slidey thing. So you can, go oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. and then uh, so. But that was it. Was a very good party trick, though. Good walk around and I go, just what? What size am I? Hmm. New bowling
1: shoes, though. They're actually kind of like a runner's with a strap.
2: huh.
0: but there's, the, the underneath still the same. Oh, is it? Yeah, oh, okay. It's all. The, it doesn't matter what it is on on top. Did
2: many people um, steal walk? them? Yes. yes,
0: all the time.
2: <laughs> I remember doing that. You know, you finish your. You know, you go to a bowling party when you're a kid or mm. whatever. You finish and you just walk off, forgetting that you're wearing them.
0: Yeah, you'd have to. You'd keep an eye out for people that came in like thongs or something, or just ah. old volleys, and you're like, which I never understood why someone would want to steal
2: bowling, bowling shoes. shoes.
0: Like it's like they're not comfortable to and walk in. They're not in. attractive. No. Yeah.
2: Oh, I remember. You just walk off, forgetting you've got them on.
0: Somewhere. Oh yeah, done that pl- plenty of times. But yeah, that was my special skill. Just, but it was something that I'd kind of Aww. look around all the time and go, yep, you're a size 10, you're a size 8.5.
1: Can I tell you a skill that you wouldn't believe that I have? Because I've actually mm. lost it. I worked at a service station when I was at uni, and I am very good at filling up cars with petrol. So whenever my friends would pull up at service how, stations. How do you muck
0: that up, though? You'd be surprised. <laughs> so
1: if, if you hold the Bowser, particularly older Bowsers, less so now, because a lot of them are those kind of more electronic y ones, mm. but if you hold the um, the. Bowser, like if you hold it up too high, it yeah. cuts out. You know the clicky thing that yeah. it does? Yeah, yeah. No. yeah it and so sometimes very, actually sometimes quite often a few times a week someone would come and say there's something wrong with your and I'd say no, you're just holding your thing wrong. And they'd Did say, you roll your eyes when you said it? I'd say oh actually there's a bit of a technique. Uh, you're probably holding the, the pump too high oh. and that's they'd, they'd say oh and then I'd go out <laughs> and I'd do it and it was so satisfying. I'd be like there you go. So
0: just like this. Just like
1: that but I became obsessed with watching friends' About like, bowser and pump technique.
0: Wow, I didn't know there was technique involved.
1: Yeah, and I've, I've actually lost it now. I did it the other day and I got really angry at myself. Oh. Because yeah. <laughs> you were holding it too yeah, high. Yeah, I was holding it too high and I couldn't get it right. I couldn't remember what I used to do to get it right.
0: Man, I've never had that issue, but... Oh, no, that's a lie I have. But I thought it was... Um, I didn't realize it was the way you're holding your bows. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I,
2: I've had that issue. And, or sometimes, then you're fiddling around with it, and then you miss the last bit of it, and you pull it out, and goes, goes everywhere. everywhere. That always happens to yeah. me.
0: What are, are you? And what's the technique after you've finished filling up? Is it? Do you give a little bit of a bit shake? Of a shake, and then yeah. if
1: you're really good at what you do, you get the water, the, can, the watering can. Oh yes, and you I've water seen lots of.
0: Lots of dads Older do that. Oh, the dads! Yeah, what? I got what that, that off my dad.
1: So once you've um, pulled like the pump out and you're yeah. plugging it back up on the Bowser, mm. you get the watering can that's nearby, all the you know the, the thing for your window, and you pour it over. Yeah, just wash the, uh, the cap. Uh. Yeah, so that you don't have excess petrol. I don't know why. If they're worried someone's going to flick a ciggy at you
2: or something, just to keep it well, clean. Keep it clean. Mm. While we're asked we're talking about this. Something I've always wondered is. You know how like some cars will only take leaded or unleaded or super leaded or, or whatever and yes. the pumps, the, the thing's designed so you can't put the wrong one in. Does anyone ever manage to get the wrong one in?
1: Yes. Yes, my my sister-in-law filled yep. up a diesel car with non-diesel. Oh, and yeah, does that bugger it up?
0: Yeah, heaps. Yeah, heaps. <laughs> the
1: car broke
2: down. <laughs> I don't know what why that's so lot. funny. <laughs> Like I think it's, it's funny. Really but so what do, you, do you have to force it in? Or no,
1: because it, it actually does fit in. Yeah. The, 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 the difference is that the big diesel pumps now have, that's why they have that warning, this is yeah. diesel kind of extra piece of plastic on it. But yeah. the other way around is the one that people don't suspect. So if you've got a diesel car and you pick up, which is what she did, regular petrol and stuck it in.
2: Oh. oh yeah. And then yeah. what happens when you start it?
1: Just it broke down. Oh, she drove that, about, like, 100 metres down the road and it stopped.
2: Yeah, oh, That's, like, my worst nightmare.
1: <laughs> is that, that's your worst nightmare. That's not my worst yeah. nightmare. It is a nightmare. You have a diesel no, truck. Because no, no. <laughs> I, I don't drive and very And you pull often. it up and you fill it up with <laughs> unleaded instead of diesel.
2: I don't drive very much, right? I use those flexi car things. Yes. And... I don't know why, but it's always got in my head that I'm gonna go in there and I'm gonna put the somehow get the wrong one in there and it's gonna do exactly that. Go add uh, I was hoping you're gonna tell me it wasn't possible to do and if you did it, oh. nothing bad was gonna
1: happen. No, nah, yeah. No, <laughs> oh, it can happen. The really stressful thing was when we were changing over from super, from leaded to unleaded, so for all supercars, you had to add this you had to put this oh. additive supercars. Right. Yeah. People would always argue with me about it. Like, what do I have to put this in for? What do I have to put this in for? And I was like, I'm not the world. I haven't invented (laughs) um, unleaded and super petrol.
2: And also I don't care.
1: No, I don't care at all. You're
0: holding the nozzle up too high.
2: Three. Triple. Empire, an installation by Rome, is on until the 22nd of April at Burnham Beaches in Sherbrooke. The artist behind it is, as the name suggests, Roan. He's joining us now. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Some listeners will know the property on Burnham Beaches, the iconic building there. Others will not. Can you tell us something about the building where this installation takes place?
3: Um, I think the building was originally built by... Alfred Nicholas, who is also responsible for the Nicholas Building that a lot of people know, and know beautiful in beautiful building, yeah. And I think it's the same architect. I think it was, I'm going to say Harry Norris, but I could have got that wrong. Um, who's designed it? And it's this majestic beauty that's hidden in the forest, and it's been it's been there since 1930. And unfortunately, I think Alfred Nicholas only lived there for quite a short amount of time like less than five years before he passed away and it's been transformed several times um over the decades i think the last transformation was into a hotel in the 80s and i think in the early 90s it shut down and it's been vacant ever since
2: okay so it was an abandoned building how did you get access to it to make this extraordinary work of art
3: um the building's been bought and sold several times and It's currently owned by, um, everyone knows him as like a celebrity chef, Shannon Bennett, Mm. and another uh, property developer, Adam Garrison. And they've had the building for eight years now and they've, you know, slowly getting more and more permits through to start their development. But it's been sitting there for a long time and Shannon saw my previous project at um, Elfington where I'd taken over a two-bedroom weatherboard house and done a installation and brought in all the furniture, and he just offhandedly mentioned to me, "I've got this place up in the hills, and maybe you want to paint a wall there." You know, it's it's sitting there empty at the moment, and it was just a uh, I don't know I took it with a grain of salt, and a lot just of the place up in the yeah, hills, <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lot of people <laughs> say things to me, is like, and it just never happens. I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. And eventually, I got up there and I saw it, and I started to you Know just push him on and say, Oh, can we, you know, get inside one day and come and check it out? And finally got in there and um, met the other owner Adam and just started it's like, Well, what can I do? What, what can I do? And what well, can I do? Like, let where, me at it, where, 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 <laughs> where does this stop? It's like, I want the whole thing, you know. Once I saw it, it was like, Um, yeah, it just I don't know, I just became very obsessed with it. Uh,
0: this work took you what over 12 months to complete and it wasn't just you there was like a whole team behind you as well like Carly um, Spooner is that she was um, like the interior designer and it was it's quite incredible when you walk through just how much attention to detail there is in every single room can you talk to us a little bit about that
3: yeah um, Carly Spooner is a longtime friend of mine and she is someone I got involved in the previous project and, you know, once I kind of had the slight go-ahead, um, you know, she's the first person I called and, you know, I was like, I'm going to ruin your year. <laughs> 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 um And, you know, it's been fantastic, but it just, you know, it took so much work from her as well. Just like we literally just started because it, it was totally bare. That's what a lot of people don't understand. Like there wasn't a single kind of, piece of carpet or curtain or a light fitting um so we had to like well what do we hang from the roof what kind of curtains do we get what kind of tables do we get and where to find those and start sourcing and so you know there's one room that's um which is surprisingly the hardest to source was i wanted to make like a a small library where it's the walls are kind of floor to ceiling of books and to find those old leatherback books, um, like the encyclopedia style, yeah. took three months. Wow. Of just like each time you go to like, you know, a thrift store or yeah. looking a gum tree and whenever mm-hmm. we're picking up another couch or something from a store, I like always check all the books, you know, anything that fits. we just collect them slowly and slowly. Yeah,
0: and because it's quite incredible. Like when you walk through, like you, there's all this... The season, so you know you walk through the summer and winter and autumn, like you know so you know in the autumn rooms there's dried leaves everywhere, and it's almost like yeah the building has been abandoned, and you know the window's been left open, and it's just you know leaves and stuff have just been blown in it's quite it's quite incredible
3: yeah, it was a um almost the influence of like when you drive up there like and you're going through this almost majestic forest and mm. you know you feel transported as. Already, and I saw how important that is to the building. And, and um, you know, it's quite obvious that left long enough that nature would very much take this building back. And the the people from Loose Leaf, Charlie and Wona, who do all the organic sculptors, and I brought them on really early and was like, well, and then we started talking about the seasons. Like, and I'm like, well, autumn's obvious to me. It's like, mm. it's the leaves on the ground. So, but what's summer? And they're like, it's grasses. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Uh so we started collecting all these grasses and drying them out for that and that kind of you know influenced other things within the space and um you see in further how like we've done winter or like the dry branches as well and Mm. how that becomes you know it's it's not obvious when you first walk around but it wasn't yeah. You might pick it up later on. It's just it almost gave a, gave us slight themes to work with.
0: Oh yeah, it was amazing. I walked through it and then yeah, it wasn't until someone pointed it out to me and I went, Oh, of course. Yeah. It's really obvious once it's pointed out to you.
1: At what point in the project do you decide what images you're going to be creating? And how much is that informed by the building itself? Because you've kind of, you've done this before on you know yeah. people know you work on silos or on that house that you just mentioned.
3: Yeah, I um because of the nature of this project, it being heritage, I had to do an entire plan and submit that to heritage to get it approved. Wow. So I was Jeez. planning way back before I touched a single wall and um, trying to convince them, you know, that it was going to work and it wasn't going to actually deteriorate the building any further and that I could get it back to where it began. Did that mean you actually
1: had to present them with?
3: Yep. sketches and images Everything.
1: wow and is that you yeah. have you
3: ever worked like that before um I usually do like a a plan for myself you know and it's not always like a sketch but it's almost like I mock it up in the computer sometimes and like because I'm using photographs so easier to drag and drop but I had to go and photograph each room and work out slightly what we were doing in each space and we didn't have a plan for every single piece of furniture that was going in each room but we had a plan of like well, we're going to use these colours slightly and we're going to do this kind of texturing to the wall and how we're going to use that, like the type of paint we're going to use, the type of wallpaper we're going to use and explain that all to them.
1: Jeez.
0: Yeah,
3: and how it can be removed.
0: (laughs) Because you have to clean it all up at the end, don't you?
3: Yeah, I have to get it back to how I found it. That's... um it was almost like a the deal with the devil I made
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> in the promotional materials the uh, piece is described as part exhibition part installation part VR and AR experience tell us about the VR and AR part yeah the um
3: the people responsible for the VR and AR um, I've worked with them in the past but
2: is virtual reality AR augmented reality yes
3: augmented right. reality um, and they they tend to overlap a little bit because they're both using you know kind of 3 d Space in a digital kind of realm. Um, with the AR, we actually scanned the entire building before I started um, with this specialized camera equipment that they have, where it's um, it scans the space almost like a you know like a three D scanner, but it's in full color. So it builds a model of the space kind uh, of exactly as you see it, and it almost becomes something like. Google Street View It's ah. probably the best way to do it, but inside a building. Um, and the have used that model to now kind of they, they've they mapped it again and they lock onto the space that you're standing in and you can hold up, like, the tablet and look around the room and you can see um, everything in the room disappear and go back to what it was. Mm. Ah. And that's kind of quite an experience for people to see that. You know, a lot of people have just assumed I've just painted the wall. <laughs> you know, but like, Once you see, like, how much wasn't there, you know, that's kind of mm. like it makes people kind of, like, re-look at everything again, which is kind of nice.
0: You've used um, portraits of um, the actor Lily Sullivan in all the rooms. Is there any particular reason why you just have a portrait of one person in each room?
3: I think it's a story about, I don't say one person, but it's a story probably about you know, one relationship. Right. You know, so it's not about, you know, I've had someone say to me, oh, why don't you paint, like, the entire history of the building? It's like I didn't want to paint, you know, something historical or I'm mm. not trying to do a, yeah, a documentary because I'd only get that wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for me, I'm trying to, you know, have her as the character um, that's kind of part of the story of the building.
2: Yeah, you talked before about Heritage Victoria and the, the listing of the building. I'm sure that this work will have drawn a lot of people's attention to this beautiful building. What are the plans for it? What, what happens once this? you pack up your exhibition, you get things back to the way it were. What happens then?
3: Uh, they're planning to turn it into a hotel. That's um, my knowledge of it. And I think they got um, some of their key permits through late last year. While I've been working on the building, I was almost nervous. I'm like... Oh, no, they're going to start moving on. They're going to kick me Because <laughs> <laughs> I was asking them at the same time, I was like, can I have a little bit longer?
2: <laughs> all right. This is not like visiting a normal gallery. If people want to come and see the work, how do they do it?
3: Um, you, this is kind of a, a backwards thing, but it's like you, you book tickets online and you come and see the space. However,
2: it's all tickets
3: have been sold out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, however, we are trying to see if we can do things like increasing our capacity, um, or maybe, you know, adding an extra time slot here or there and that stuff we haven't got confirmed. But we, if we are going to announce that, it'll go through my mailing list so people could sign up on my website and that'll be the first place to it. What if you,
0: like, keep it open for an extra week and then we all come and help you pack up at the end
3: you know, Save <laughs> a bit of time? That, that would be nice, but uh, <laughs> I, the problem is to keep it open another week. I, my permit ends. Uh-huh. I so, like, all the permits have to be reapplied for been the Heritage one. And it's just a Too much. logistical nightmare <laughs> and I start losing money at that point. <laughs> uh,
2: the installation is called Empire. It's on the property on Burnham Beach. It's the artist behind it is Roan. Perhaps jump on the Roan website and keep an eye out if there are going to be some extra tickets. Thanks so much for joining us. Great. Thank you.
4: Three, triple,
3: R. Oh.
2: Time to talk film here on Breakfast, that means it's time to talk to Hayley Inch. Good morning, Hayley.
5: Bonjour tout le monde, ça va? Oh. They're exhaust my high school friend. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Ça va bien, merci. Et ah. tu? Oh, ça, ça va, merci. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, the reason why I'm exploding into French this morning is because the film that I'm talking about today is currently screening at the Allianz Francaise French Film Festival, which is on at, I think, pretty much every single palace cinema in town. And it goes like for over a month. it's running until April 6th this year and, uh, kind of making a little tradition since like during last year's French film festival, I reviewed a Claire Denis film, let the sunshine in starring the radiant Juliette Binoche. And this year I can talk about another new Claire Denis film starring Juliette Binoche. Aww. It's just very nice. I'm just hoping that they kind of like make up a rich partnership and just start popping out films each year. That would be very, very good for me. Uh, so, the new film from Claire Denis is called High Life. And alongside Juliette Pinoch, it stars Robert Pattinson. This is her first film done in English. And it is set in space. Our pats in space, my friends. So cool. Yes. So, the story follows, and this is a bit wild, so like, keep with me here. Okay. The story follows a spaceship in deep space and when we meet it for the first time the only people on this spaceship is our pats and a baby Oh, yes. Serious. Very mysterious. Where
0: did the baby come from? Where did the baby come from?
5: Whose baby is it? Is it an alien? Yeah, who knows? We don't know from from this very beginning. But we kind of start, you know, Denise starts teasing out little bits of information, and we realize that this was a ship that at one point in time was essentially filled with criminals who were jettisoned into space to go investigate black holes. Ah. Oh, smart. He's yeah. a criminal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in the Is, criminals it? It. Is it? <laughs> <gasps> so, yeah, we kind of, yeah, get into this bizarre situation where you realise, oh, okay, our pats and the baby are the only survivors on this oh. ship, what happened? And then the fu- the film kind of unspools backwards to kind of start filling in, you know, who were the other denizens on this ship? What, w- what was the purpose of their mission? And yes, it was a suicide mission. What was going ah. on on this ship, which turns out a lot of freaky business because the person normally in charge of the ship was a, a nefarious scientist, It's called Dr. Dibbs. Mm Played by Lubinosh, um, who was conducting sexual experiments oh on my everyone. God, like the experiments, yes. <laughs> so she, yes. Yeah, so she, she was interested in ideas of fertility in space, and all of the other prisoners on the ship were her little guinea pigs.
2: I was going to say because I was kind of thinking, oh, this didn't sound like very much of a French film. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
5: oh, oh, no, 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 no. no. So, <laughs> Suddenly we are in wild territory. Yeah. I will thoroughly warn people. Like if your mum comes to you going, Oh, I was looking at the French Film Festival program, let's go watch this nice Juliet Benoche movie. No, this no. is not the nice Juliet Benoche movie. There is a lot of wild business happening in
3: this.
5: Uh, film. Okay that got some people in yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah this is this is definitely more your very contemplative very full on philosophical french cinema claire denis always pretty out there Anyway, and she's kind of yeah, just taken the chocks off for her English language debut and just gone. Can I ask Let's this question? If it's
1: an English mm. debu- an English language debut, mm. is it French accent? Is, is it like a French cast?
5: Uh, as is it far a- as I can tell, Juliette Binoche may actually be the only French actor in it. Some okay. of some of the other supporting actors. You know, it might be as well. But, but the major supporting actors are um, people like Mia Goth and Andre Benjamin, Mr. Andre 3000 uh-huh. himself. Oh my God, really? Who is fantastic. And I could have enjoyed a lot more of him in the film. I, yeah, he, he's very wonderful every time he appears. So, yeah, but it's very much like a multinational collaboration like that she was working with American partners but there's also French funding in it as well so it's kind of like one of those nice hodgepodge productions (laughs) and yes no if you're a sci-fi fan as well I think you'll quite enjoy this one because um I really really love practical effects in sci-fi movies and this is all practical effects so every time you see shots of like space and the spaceships and all of that something they're all like models and special lighting effects and things like that and I was just so it feels very 2001 and it's just like kind of takes you back to you know it's very much clearly wanting to sit into a a, a, of a lineage of really really smart Mm. sci-fi like your 2001s like Tarkovsky Solaris it's kind of within that that kind of sci-fi genre so there's not people running around with laser guns or anything like that but oh, yes we are we are sitting and contemplating the philosophy and the existential you know terror of terror space of space <laughs> and oh, black holes just and existence a review
2: that calls it baffling and incomprehensible
5: oh oh ah. maybe maybe yeah i must admit i'm like <laughs> This is a film where I don't think it's pitching... It's not pitching towards a mainstream film audience at all. It's pitching towards a literate film audience. And, like, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in it that is, like, viscerally upsetting. It's a Claire Denis movie. It's not going to be a Denis movie unless there's something really upsetting Mm. going on in it. So, Was her last film the one, The Eating... The, the one where they ate each other no okay, it wasn't no. that one Ooh. so her last yeah her last film was like it was billed as like a romantic comedy but it was like really really twisted okay. and like depressing and but kind of wonderful at the same time it was yeah but she does play around a lot with like violence and sex although she says that her films are a lot more about sexuality rather than sex she is obsessed with fluids this movie is filled oh. with oh, fluids Jesus, yeah, I mean, oh. there's a lot of that. Um, there, there's also and like you know uh, part uh, maybe you know mute this for the children. This film includes an ominous device known as the fuck box. Okay, and that oh, is what everyone no. that is what everyone calls it. I'm not going to discuss it further than that. But maybe you were intrigued by a movie that contains something called a fuckbox. It sounds very French. It's very French. Oh yeah, and like God. I said, like there's Let a lot. There's fuck a, books. Yeah, the <laughs> fuckbox. Well, apparent, apparently the French financiers wanted to call it the love box. Ah. And Denis was like, no, it's a fuckbox. Oh, God. So- <laughs> right. Well. So maybe Denis is even too French for the French. I don't know. But, yeah, obviously, like, this movie contains a lot of violence. There's there's sequences of rape, that sort of oh. thing. It's it's a lot. So if you feel like you might be a little bit overwhelmed oh, yeah. by already something already like already this, don't worry. It's fine. But so. if you feel like you want to be maybe challenged by something and maybe come out the end going, that was a lot that just happened to me, but I kind of feel like it was very much worthwhile, which was kind of how I came out at, at at the end and also there's a wonderful score as well by Tinder Sticks oh, they, yeah. Jesus <laughs> I know there's just so much going on in this film that everything oh, feels a like a non-sequitur it's just like oh, my. yeah it's like Mad Libs this movie no, I'm um,
2: glad that there are yeah. movies like this out there I know. I'm glad that there are people like you who are seeing them
5: <laughs> I will go and see them it's fine <laughs>
2: thank you so much Haley. it's wonderful as always
5: no worries always a pledge
2: Three triple R You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R. The Melbourne Queer Film Festival is on until March 25th. A centerpiece of it is screening tonight at Acme, Bright Colours and Bold Patterns. It will be attended by its star, Drew Drogi. Right now, however, he's joining us in the Breakfasters studio. Welcome to Triple R.
6: Oh, thank you.
2: Good Good morning. Good morning to you. Now, Bright Colours and Bold Patterns is a one man Broadway show. You're not actually performing the show tonight, so what will people be seeing if they head down to Acme?
6: I get to just hang out and watch and <laughs> drink a lot of margaritas, <laughs> I hope, and, and enjoy it. Um, they will be watching a screen capture of, of of actually two performances that we've edited together, my final two performances in New York um, about a year ago that we did. And so Broadway HD is this amazing streaming service and, and they... Had four cameras, and they they came and saw the show several times, and so they edit a they they turn in a beautiful edit of the show because I was so resistant to filmed theater, like it's a, you know it's like mom and dad with a camcorder in the yeah. back. It's like, it's <laughs> sort of imagine, yeah. but they did an incredible job, and they it also feels uh, less like a comedy show and more like you're actually sitting in the theater watching that you know those two final performances. So. Um, Uh, And I've heard that people can't tell that it's two performances edited together, which makes me happy. I couldn't tell. Uh, Oh, good. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, but the show is uh, I'm playing one character and I'm talking to three different people. Um, So it's a play with one actor and four characters. But the one actor only plays one character. So – I'm playing um, the nightmare at the of the wedding. Um, it's it's the night before a gay wedding in Palm Springs, and I play the guy who's coming there to be the life of the party and then be the ruination of it later <laughs> on. And uh, you know, so it's been a, it's been a lot of fun. But it it was based on a a real invitation I I, I got. did wonder about that. Yes, it? I got a, I re, I, I was invited to a to a straight wedding. Uh, my a good friends who I love dearly, who I love to uh, you know have I've. Drag them through so much mud with this show but it was because the bride asked the guests not to wear bright colors or bold patterns because she wanted a very muted desert tone palette at her wedding. Um, so we were terrified the whole wedding like is this too bright? Is this too bold? Um, but then gay marriage became legalized in the United States around the time that I was thinking of this idea and I saw uh, and obviously that was a wonderful thing and congratulations. I know Australia just uh, got this uh, um, stated as well. But... I just questioned immediately our our rushing to heteronormative culture and how every gay couple was immediately asked when are you getting married and don't you want that and don't you want the house with the picket fence and the child and the, the life that our parents had and so I wanted to question that and sort of and so I so I created a character who is very much not ready to settle down not ready to be married um, and uh, a mess uh, and also I wanted to celebrate that mess and celebrate the queerness. Uh, that we have uh, inside. And I wanted to raise a lot of questions. So, that's um, There's a great
2: line early on. uh, We celebrate things and make fun of them at the same time. That's called gay. Yes. That's very much much the flavor
6: of the show, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Yeah, it was something I I, I think I did say that to somebody because I was trying to explain how, I think it was like how gay men love to get together and talk about women, like famous women. And I think it was even maybe a female friend of mine who was like, do you lo- love or hate these women? Because you love to, like you talk about them constantly. You worship them. You also love to watch them fail or be messy. And mm. I was like, it's both in a way, but it, it's, it, I think it's definitely love, but it's also like, we also love the, um, uh, we love the comeback. We love the tragedy. We love the, the emotional um, availability of women that I think we, we crave as gay men. And so like, yeah, I wanted to say, I, so I said that we celebrate things and make fun of them. It's the same thing to us, and it's something that um, you know. Yeah, it's camp. You know,
0: when when you go to a wedding, mm-hmm. what, are you like your character in the show? Or?
6: <laughs> I hope not. I try to be a lot more uh, uh, friendly. I try not to get too drunk and too messy on drugs. Um, <laughs> no promises, um, but I do. Uh, I do believe in being as bright and as bold as you can, and that was the thing that I that I. That I think was interesting that as <clears throat> as queer culture gets more mainstream, which is obviously a wonderful thing, we shouldn't lose our otherness and yeah. our and our, um, our wildness. Um,
0: so what do you see as the perfect same-sex marriage wedding?
6: Oh, I don't know. I think it should be authentic to who the couple it's, are. Because, yeah. I mean, to some people, they want that very traditional wedding that their parents had and then some people want uh, uh you know to come in riding a tiger and you know uh, uh, whatever <laughs> in, in, on flame in flames or whatever that i yeah. mean i think people should be authentic to who they are and i think that's that's the takeaway that we that we shouldn't be and i think that's for straight people as well i think you shouldn't be limited to uh these sort of mores that we sort of grew up being told this is what's correct Mm.
2: in in the play you talk about uh there's another line about a crazy race to normal yes how widespread is this sort of sense within the queer community in america that the the mainstreaming of gay culture is is accompanied by maybe a sense of loss at the same time yeah
6: i i've seen it happen a lot in uh film and tv where we had for years we had these very stereotypical gay characters In, in the in the well in women too it was like all the lesbians were were butch, and they had to be that, or you couldn 't believe that that you know that there 'd be a feminine woman who could be a lesbian, or you couldn 't believe that you know there 's a, a quote unquote straight acting whatever that means man who who says that he 's gay, so we had these very limited boxes that we put queer people in, um, and that 's obviously a problem, but then it started to switch into all queer people had to act very quote unquote straight in order to be acceptable and we only wanted nice portrayals and I'm seeing that now in a lot of these roles that a lot of these LGBT roles are all great people and that's good I mm. guess in theory but it's not real it's not human we're all human beings we're all we're all messy do you we want all...
0: some gay villains yes, yes. <laughs> and that's
6: what I want to play and I want to see that and I don't think that's saying that gay people are bad I think that's saying no. gay people are human mm. you know and it's just like it's just a thing where it's like saying that you know, um, you know. I think it's with any minority that you know you you have to establish that that the minority is not the problem, minority is not the villain, but the person inside of it absolutely can be, and that's interesting to me.
1: Yes. Do you think that that kind of commercialization of queer culture kind of dulls it a little bit. I read this take on Queer Eye, the new Queer mm-hmm. Eye recently. Yes. Some people love it and they mm-hmm. say that this is kind of, you know, it's great to see this queer representation being taken on by the mainstream. But this piece said that it kind of makes queerness dull and and fit one kind of box. Do you feel like that?
6: Yeah, I think it's both actually because I think it's a great thing and I love that, that Queer Eye is, is back and it's so popular and it does feel like a very different energy yeah. from the original Queer Eye what, 10 years ago or whenever that was. Um, but also, I would, first of all, I would love to see a queer eye with queer, uh, all you know, women and trans people as well. Because I feel like it's limiting to have five men on a show called Queer Eye. Because it's like there are a lot of queer people that aren't just that male presenting. Mm. Um, and yes, I think it is definitely like um, I, I, I think we can. I just always think we can raise the bar for ourselves as queer people and not feel like we have to lower it in order to make because the. Really intelligent, cool, straight people that I know and love, and I know a lot of them, don't want us to dumb down or dull down either. And I don't think they should dull down either. Yeah. This is a dumb question,
2: but I was thinking the entire time when I was watching this show, so I'm going to ask you anyway. You... In the show, as you say, it's a one-person show. You're addressing these other characters off stage. One of the main characters you're talking to is someone called Mac.
6: That yes. you're Addressing
2: the stuff. Do you ever do the show and have a Mac in the audience? And if so, what happens?
6: Oh, absolutely. Mac is the 22-year-old twink in the show who's wearing a speedo the whole time, and we kept referencing how <laughs> gorgeous he is. And I knew better not to cast a real actor in that role because no one would be looking at me if that was <laughs> happening. So um, I have a lot of people that come up to me very sweetly and say, "I think I'm the Mac." In the show, oh. and, I'm and in my relationship, he's actually um, not to give too much away, but he he comes off as as kind of dim at first. But he's he's the heart of the play. He's actually the person that changes my character because he's very sweet. And he, the thing that I, I I'm actually very hopeful about young gay culture because I know a lot of young people who don't maybe know a lot, but they want to know. And I think the desire to know is all that counts because. All of us are ignorant about some things. And as long as you're not snobby about your ignorance and arrogant and say, I don't need to learn about that. Um, because that's really the character that I'm playing, is that he's he's coming off as this know it all and he acts like he doesn't need to learn anything new. So he's very resistant to learning new things. And then he meets this kid who doesn't know much of anything about queer culture, who wants to learn and he realizes like, oh, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. So I just you know, I always love when people say that, that they, they're like, I'm the back, and I'm like, all right, well here's who Joan Crawford was. And, you know, won't start there.
2: <laughs> uh you've done a lot of film and TV work as well. How does that compare to doing something like this? I always see these one people shows and think that must be insanely stressful to be carrying a whole, you know, play for an hour and a half by
6: it, it, yourself on stage. Yes, it is. It's also the most fun. It was the thing that when I first did this, this is my fourth solo show that I've that I've done. And the first solo show I did, I remember telling the the stage manager I might leave out the back door. And I've never thought i I was gonna maybe just not show up on stage. I was so nervous. Mm-hmm. And then I got on stage and it was my favorite thing I've ever done. And so it's it's so it's every time I get up to do it, it is it's insanely stressful because you have to carry the whole thing. And when I did it for, you know, several months in New York there were nights that my props weren't set. There were nights that I had lights explode on me. I had nights that I had to go downstairs and and make a drink, and then while the audience is waiting on me. Well, one night I should say one night <laughs> when that happened, and it was you know. But it's the the joy of it. There's a thrill of it because when you work in film and TV, you have no idea how you're doing, and you have no you have no sense of. Also, there many times I've done I, I I'll do like a day on a, a show, or a, I'll do one scene in a movie. And I don't know what the rest of the movie looks like. They don't always tell you that. So I've watched things, and I'm like, oh, I wish I'd known. You know. So you're not really part of the the making of it as much as you know. uh, You're not as aware. Where you're doing theater, you get to go from beginning to end every night, and you get an immediate sense of that audience. It's my favorite thing to just. It's a communication with them, and so I prefer. To be on stage You just get paid A lot more money To be on TV <laughs> <movies>. <laughs>
2: Well If you want to share That communication You can come down To Acme Tonight For Bright Colours And Bold Patterns It's part of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival And Drew Drogi Will be there you Are doing
6: A and a afterwards is- We're doing I'm doing just. A, I'm pre, uh, presenting At the beginning And then we're doing A party afterwards So there'll be A big party oh, Much better <laughs> So you don't have To sit and be boring You know Talk about it I will, we'll, We can all get Drunk together after So please come down <laughs> Excellent
2: Thanks so much Drew Drogi. Three triple. Ah.
0: Do you remember that feeling when you were a teenager, when you'd done something wrong, but you you know that you haven't gotten away with it? Oh yeah.
2: Yes. Oh yeah. Do you
0: remember any particular time that
2: it? Oh, I actually the the one I was thinking about wasn't um. When I was a teenager, it was when I was very young. It's actually one of my really early memories. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I don't know why it stuck with me for so long, but that exactly that sinking, guilty feeling. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was something so trivial, too. <laughs> we were at, I remember we were in a library. I think it might have been when I was living in America, but we are in a library and the um, teacher was reading us a, a picture book, mm-hmm. you know, and then we had to look. We were looking at books ourselves and then it was time to go and we had to put them away. And... I couldn't get the book to go back in the cover slip. Yes. And so I just sort of shoved it all in (laughs) and put it back on the shelf and hoped that nobody would notice. And I can remember thinking, they're going to notice, aren't they? They're going to notice. They're going to notice. And then I started to walk out and then I can remember being called back. To and, and the teacher saying, What have you done with that book there? And there's just this horrible feeling like it was oh. the worst thing in the world that I've done.
0: Oh, and then, but what, nothing happened though. They just, no, they just
2: made me do it again. again. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, it just seemed like I'd oh. done the biggest, the biggest deal. deal. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, But I couldn't man. get it to go back in the car. That, that, is, that
1: kid guilt over small things is so, like, the worst it? guilt in the world. <laughs> mm.
0: But also,
2: since then, I've done many
1: worse
0: things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's. It's almost like the Jeff Sparrow origin story. (laughs) (laughs) Why can't you... Oh, this is too hard. I'll just shove it all in. Oh, my
1: God, it is. Oh, my God. You know where it all started. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Just oh, trying very, to, <laughs> it was very <laughs> traumatic. Yeah, well, yeah, it sounds like um, it. <sighs> I remember um, being uh, older and my, this is, yeah, when I was a teenager and uh, I've got a couple, of the, one of them, I think I was in like year seven or year eight and I um, got caught. Smoking at the bus stop. Oh. Don't smoke, kids. Um, well,
2: that is pretty bad.
0: <laughs> it is bad, isn't it? But we we had a bus stop. It wasn't at school. we uh, our bus was like we had to kind of walk across the road and down the street um, to catch the bus from there. And there was a you know a shop there, so someone would have some. Cig- and we'd go around the corner and yeah, smoke some. Cig- I I didn't have my own cigarettes. I just had a you know a and puff of someone. It's else. all right. We all
2: smoked as teenagers. <laughs>
0: It just has a puff of somebody else's.
2: Um, Were you um, asthmatic already then?
0: No, no. <laughs> <laughs> got it later.
1: Get diagnosed, yeah. Get
2: diagnosed. Yeah. Oh, I was just thinking about your poor parents. The kid's already got asthma. And you're trying to say, look, just don't smoke. This is a stupid thing to do. And then they go this, away.
0: Yeah. Anyway, so I got caught. And then there was, I think one of the students went the next day, told the, you know, uh year coordinator. Oh, Really? That, what a student! What a dipper! Over. Yeah. Um, anyway, so we one at a time got called to the to the office. And I I can't remember if I knew why I was being called to the office. Because someone else had said. I think someone else had said, "Oh, yeah. someone dobbed us in for smoking." And I was like, "Oh," I remember going to the office and thinking, "I'm in so much trouble." And they our, they would have like um, afternoon detentions. Oh so you'd, yes. You get this, you know, this slip, and it would just say, "Geraldine will be detained after school for," and then the teacher would write in, whatever the reason was. Um, and it, mine just said Johnny will be detained after school for smoking at the bus
2: stop, uh-huh.
0: and then you had to take it home and get your parents to sign oh. it, oh. and then bring it back. I remember so it just makes it a sleep. Mm. makes
2: it a long ordeal, doesn't it? You've got to get past the being called, in yes. St- but then you, the ordeal is not over until you get home. get
0: home. Get home, and remember you've got two parents to deal with. Oh, oh my god! Of course. So I get home, um, and and there's no way you can kind of. Change what's written. <laughs> I bet you do tried you know I mean? though. <laughs> like yeah. it's handwritten smoking so at the you, bus stop? What could
2: you change smoking? Yeah, exactly. Joking. Like, oh, j- jo- oh, oh, joking. Maybe. Joking at the bus stop. <laughs> That's Genius. all right. Yeah. Well,
0: what jokes will you make? <laughs> anyway, I'm in a lot of trouble. So I remember, um, and just, you know, getting home and just being like, okay, just rip the bandaid off. You can do this. And I I handed the detention slip over to my mum, and I remember her like just standing there in complete silence as she read it. Oh, that silence! And just that, and just a really long pause, oh. and then she just went, "Well, you can get your father to sign it when he gets home." Oh.
1: oh, it's the worst punishment of all! Oh,
0: mate, the <laughs> you wait till your father yeah. gets home. And then, so then it was like, "Oh, I have to wait." Another oh two hours or whatever horrible. till Dad got home, and just that—it's wait- making just me feel <laughs>
2: tense. <laughs> I know
0: <laughs> that oh, not knowing and what's what on earth is Dad going to do? What's going to happen? I'm never going to be able to leave the house again. This is
2: did they um did they smoke like Dad, was smoking a big thing in your house? Uh,
0: Dad used to smoke, and I I think he dad got diagnosed with asthma and then he quit right um but i but that he must have quit b- before this had happened so when i was about 10 or something i think he quit um but yes i remember there being anyway so i'm waiting for a couple of hours and then you know, you just cannot relax no you know we'd all had dinner i was sitting there oh. watching the tv dad was late home from work
2: oh we still
0: and I, so I'm sitting there watching TV, and Dad's behind me. Like we've got, you know, he's behind at the dining table eating, and I'm on the couch. And then, like Dad's finished his, he still has not said anything at all. Like mum, he, he has seen the slip because oh. mum is showing it to him, and I'm just waiting, trying to enjoy whatever is on TV, but having much difficulty. And then I just. And then out of the corner of my eye, I see Dad sitting there and he's sitting at the table pretending to smoke. (laughs) He's just sitting there
2: going...
1: (laughs) (sighs) He is taking way too much pleasure in dragging
2: out this punishment.
0: Just so much...
1: (sighs) And I'm like, I turn,
0: and then he saw, and then he caught me looking at him, and he did it one more, and then he goes, What are you smoking at the bus stop for? And I went, I said, Oh, I just wanted to try it. Yeah. Um, and he goes, Don't smoke. And I went, All right, then. Oh, yeah, sorry, Mum just, you know oh. what Mum said before she said, Wait till your father gets home? She read the note, so I remember it properly now. She read the note and just went, Oh, well, it looks like you're walking home on Tuesday, then, doesn't it? So that was that was it. Like uh, Normally, you know, because the buses are finished by the time detention's over. Normally, parents would have to come pick uh-huh. you up. Oh,
1: uh, right. So her punishment was you have to walk.
0: Mm. It's a long walk home. <laughs> it's like 45 walk minutes. Walk of shame. Oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway, that was... Did you have anything?
1: <laughs> I got caught smoking by... I can remember getting caught smoking by my mum. Uh, but again, I was sitting... At the back of Macca's mm. and she—you uh, <laughs> and that Mackers, <laughs> that Macca's smoking as I so often did there, and uh, she always suspected that I'd started smoking because like, you know she saw tobacco in the bottom of my bag. Yes, you can I, smell it. Yeah, yeah, you can smell it on me, even though I'd spray impulse over the top of me. Like, yeah, how bad was that impulse oh, and Lynx, like Lynx yes. Africa? Yeah. They borrowed the boys. <laughs> <laughs> that
2: little lace suspicious.
1: Oh, right. and then an excuse we used to always say if Mum said you smell smoky or Dad said you smell smoky, I'd say yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, you know, Kylie and Rose smoked and we're stand- we we're standing in the garage oh, together. Mate. So I'd blame my friends. Yeah. We were stood in the garage. <laughs> oh, unbelievable. And so just- I know. What a little... Anyway, but I was sitting in the back of Maccas having a smoke and my mum had dropped my brother down to uh, get some food mm-hmm. and I didn't see her. And she's so canny. This wasn't an accident. She knew that I got up to stuff at the back of Maccas yes. mm-hmm. and had come down quietly and had parked the car in a car park.
2: Oh, like a detective. Of,
1: like a detective. And I remember taking this drag on my CD and, <laughs> and looking up and making eye contact with my mum. And I was like...
0: <laughs> oh.
1: And I was, like, trying to blow it out the side of my mouth and then got the cigarette and put it behind my back really slowly and then just kept talking to my friends because if Mum wasn't there. And the whole time she was just watching me, like, with this smile oh. on her face. Like, got oh, ya. Yeah. Got ya. Got ya. Yeah. I just pretended like she wasn't there and, and nothing had happened. And then uh, about five minutes later, the, uh, my, the family car just pulls up beside the backers and she winds down the window and she looks out and she goes, Sarah... I think your cigarette's wasting away behind you. And then just drove off. <laughs> and then, I, I, you know what? I spent weeks waiting for mum to say something to me at oh. home. Weeks. She, I was just knew. living in fear. I think she just wanted to know that I knew that was more important. And she didn't say anything to me at home. I didn't get any trouble dad didn't say anything to me until so one night we were sitting around the dinner table and we we're talking about my grandma and how i look a lot like my grandma mum's mum grandma's a smoker she was a smoker and she you know someone said oh yeah you got you know you got granny's eyes or whatever and mum said i think that you've got more than granny's eyes i think you might have a couple of her habits too <gasps> oh. You got it as well And I got the fa- And then the, But that was it It was like Mum dropped Mike And yes. then started Packing up the table And walked away oh. it's so good
4: You're listening to The best bits Of the Breakfasters From 3 Triple R.